Okay, so they were curious about different approaches to learning Gemara. And we'll talk about different things one could look for when they're learning Gemara. And as you know, in the yeshiva world, it's very common to talk about what we call the brisker derech. Uh, and that's actually why this is relevant to modern Jewish thought, because the brisker derech is usually associated with which rabbi? Rabbi, what was his name? Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik, who lived in the 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, he did two things in life professionally. He was the rub of the town of Brisk, hence the Brisk Derech. But he actually taught in the most famous European yeshiva, a yeshiva called Velazhin. Okay, And since he taught, he had a lot of influence because a lot of his most uh, successful students went on to teach elsewhere. And in most yeshiva today, they'll talk about the Brisk Derech as an approach to Talmud study. So we're going to try to understand today what this innovation was, what does it mean, and what are, I think these guys were asking, like, well, what else would you do with Gemara? Okay, so let's, maybe I'll describe a little bit what the Brisker Derech does, and we'll talk about what else might one do. Okay, so the Brisker Derech is very interested in the conceptual parts of Gemara, the ideas and the concepts. Okay, and of course, that's all there is to Gemara. So I'll talk a little bit about what, other uh, things there are besides the concepts, what I mean by that. But also, there's certain things that are get associated with it. We'll discuss it more later. For example, briskers will often say there's two dinim, or there's a hakira about A or B. So they'll say, oh, there's a word, there's a concept, but the key to understand this concept is to realize that really it's multi-layered, right? There's two elements. Okay, just to give you two examples, and we'll come back to this later. Um, well, let me ask you guys. We'll see how much you've encountered in the world of brisk. What is a classic hakira as a split that the brisker derf would use? The two aspects are? Anyone? No, nothing comes to mind? Is it A or B? What would you say? I, I, wait, if Gav hasn't uh, trained you guys? John, go for it. Live dangerously. <laughs> okay, fine. I'll do a different one. I'll do a famous one, guys. Okay, uh, this is not such a classic Hakira, but it's just famous because Rabbi Chaim Salvechik wrote one book, a commentary on the Rambam. In that book, this is the second piece altogether. In the second piece, Rabbi Chaim says, and we'll see the Salvechik particularly like the Rambam, he says, I don't understand. In Perak Dalid, the Rambam says, this is about davening. Perak Dalid says, if you don't have Kavana, it's not davening. Right? Tefillah without intent is nothing. And then in Perak Yud, he says, you. To be Yotze the Amida, I don't know how much Kamana do you have to have? You have to have Kamana for the first three brachot. Okay, we're good so far? The first section. So, says Rabbi Chaim it's a contradiction. First, he told me that Kavana is part of the very intent, is part of the very definition of prayer. And then you tell me, no, really, I could be Yotze if I just have it in the beginning and not for the entirety of the entire thing. Now, if you're a brisker, what would you say? What would be the best way to go about answering that question? Ah, that the word kavana means more than one thing. But to use brisker terminology, there are two dinim in kavana. Okay, what might be the two? Now, guys, just plug it out. Maybe you'll... Boy, gee, very good. I didn't realize you were a brisker there. Okay, a man of many talents. What do you guys say? What might be the two dinim in kavana? What could intent mean? And which one would be more encompassing? Avi, what do you think? Excellent. One is knowing what the words mean. What might be another kind of kavana? The other one is like that you're in Okay, Yana, did you hear this idea before? I think we're about to do it. Okay. 
Ilan, you want to say? Okay, so very interesting what Ilan just did. The briskers might get even more clumsy here because we might say there are three aspects of intent. Right, we get it, guys. There's no reason it has to be limited to two. Okay, what might be the three aspects of intent? What inner world could I have during prayer? One, I know what the words mean. Two, I'm trying to fulfill a mitzvah. That's the second kind of intent. Three, I have a sense of dialogue with God. Okay, and we meet. Now, can we all realize that those three don't go together necessarily? I think they can all be independent. I can know what the words mean and have no sense of communicating with God. I could have a sense of communicating with God and have no idea what the words mean. I could be trying to fill a prayer and become a mitzvah. I could not be. So everyone agrees there's three kinds of kavanah here? Okay, so what are you going to guess? What, what do you, would you think? What do I have to have for just the first part? So that, Rabbi Chaim says, that's knowing what the words mean. Right? If I can't contain, con, uh, I can't direct my intention to the words for the entire time, that's still okay. But what would he say is part of the very definition of prayer? It's not prayer unless I have a sense of standing before God. Okay, so you would say the dialogue with God was what was discussed in the fourth chapter. That's part of the very definition of prayer throughout a prayer for any section of prayer. Whereas the know what the words mean, that could be limited to a particular section and you're fine. Kevin okay, but this is exactly classic Brisker methodology. You say, well, it might be one term, but there are different aspects and different aspects are are the controlling force for different discussions. Yes, YG. Is it always brought forward to Okay, it's not always for a contradiction, but I will point out, though, it's often a contradiction and often a machloket. Now, can everyone realize why it's really the same methodology? Because what are you saying? There's really, there's an A and there's a B. That's a crucial part to what the briskers are doing. Okay, and so if there's a contradiction, how do I resolve it? This is regarding aspect A, this is regarding aspect B. If I'm not dealing with a contradiction, but I'm dealing rather with the debate between the Rambam and the Rivet, let's say, why would the same methodology play in? I'd say the Rambam's functioning with A as the conceptual structure, and the Rivet is functioning with B. So in a certain sense, it's not so different whether I'm resolving a contradiction or explaining a debate. Okay, everybody good so far? Yeah, we're good? Okay. And you might say, of course, that's what you do in Gemara. I'm going to give you five other things you could be doing. Okay, and if you guys are okay, I think I'll try to use examples from Sukkah and Babakama. I think that makes the most sense. Yeah, we're good with that? Okay, great. Let's start with the following, guys. Okay, by the parents, there's a little bit of an unusual share, but I think I hope you'll enjoy it. Even if you don't have so much exposure to Gemara, I think uh, you'll appreciate what we're doing. Okay, one thing you could do would be much more practical. I mean, what do I want to get from the Gemara? The Halakha. How I should practice. How I should paskin. Because if you think about it, what I just said... I can have a great conversation without it having any direct halachic bearing. Let's say I'm trying to analyze Rambam versus Rivet. And you say to me in Shear, do we follow the Rambam or the Rivet? If I'm a real brisker, you know what I might say? Hold, yeah, hold that for halacha Shear. That's not what we're doing here. We're just trying to understand the concepts. We're trying to understand the positions. It's about the abstract world of Talmud concepts, not about what we actually do. Whereas someone who's more halakhically wanted to say, no, it's the whole person in Gemara, so that you'll get from the process to the conclusion. Okay, I hope Ronnie won't mind if I say this. Okay, maybe he'll even be proud. I believe the Sephardic world often tends to be a little bit more practically oriented when it comes to Gemara study than the Ashkenazi world. Like, uh, again, this, I'm obviously generalizing tremendously. But in a lot of Ashkenazi yeshivot, the assumption is that, you know, Gemara is not about the halakha. 
Okay, not about practical ramifications. Where I think in Sephardi Yeshivot, often halacha plays a greater role. Uh, I would also say, I'll just give you an example, guys, why there's really a difference. I don't know if you found this at all this year, but if you found sometimes the position we don't hold like might actually be the most interesting one. You ever notice that? But then what way you do in a share? In a Gemara share? Okay, we don't follow this position, but it's really interesting. Let's put a lot of time into analyzing it. So I'll give you a great example. Guys, when you learn Sukkah, how many of you got to the third chapter? You only did the second. Because you got to the third, it would be helpful. Uh, most of you did not get to the third? Oh, man. Okay. I guess Rav David did. Wait, Avi, you're in Ravadi. So I'm going to use this example. If you don't know it, you'll get it anyway. Okay. The Gemara says, when can you not use a stolen lulav? Wait, wait. Okay, very good. So one position is you can't use it for all seven days of Sukkot. If it's stolen, it's invalid. The other position is you actually can use it after day one. Very good. Now, what are the issues at hand here? Okay. Max, did you learn this ever? Okay. But you you sure did not get to third grade. I, I, I don't remember. I don't remember like what character. Okay. Again, just because Max is from Vancouver, he learned this. Okay. So here's a good story, guys. On the first day, what's the special requirement on the first day? Yes. Ownership. Excellent. See, we have a good issue. Guys know things. Okay. You have to own your arbaminim. So therefore, if it's stolen, it's not yours. So Evan agrees that it's invalid on day one. What might be the issue on day two through seven if there's no criteria of ownership? Excellent, Manny. There's a rule called mitzvah haba We don't want mitzvah to be, you did something wrong, right? Basically, the ends don't justify the means. You can't be yotzi mitzvah by stealing a lulav. Now, here's the interesting thing. That is the mainstream position, right? In which case, you couldn't use arba minim on day two through seven, right? It was, let me, on one, you still couldn't because of lachem, but in two through seven, you can't because of mitzvah. But what if I tell you that Shmuel in the Gemara thinks you can use one on two through seven? So in my mind, now before we even get to the analysis, guys, who knows what the halacha is like? Do we follow Shmuel or not? No. We would say you can't use a stone lulav even on day four. So if my shiur is focused on halachic practice, surely I would not put as much energy into Shmuel. I wouldn't agree with that, right? I put my energy into the what we follow. But wait, what if I tell you, no one has to believe me here, guys, but this is my personal opinion. I find Shmuel more interesting. Not because I think we should follow it, but because what's the obvious question now? Wait, why does he think it's okay? Now, guys, give me two very, very broad categories for why it can it's okay. I, there's many, I have many answers, actually. But there's, I think, broadly speaking, there are two things he could say. Noam. Um, anybody Whoever's love it was would be okay if you're stealing it because it's for Okay. That's yeah, a very good thing, Noam. But let me just heighten my question a little bit, guys, or tighten it. What would Shmuel's relationship be with the concept of mitzvah ba Right? He's saying you can use the stolen lulav on day three. Well, what about mitzvah ba ba So, Elliot, what might he say? Oh, I, I was going to say that, like, uh, back then, you, if you were just to bring your lulav to shul and leave your lulav, like, on the table with everyone else's lulav and... You're not likely, like, you can pick up anyone's lulav and be able to say the mitzvah, and he'd probably be okay with that. Okay, Manny, what do you got? I would say that you have to look for other places where it's more about mitzvah. Ah, very good. So, what might I discover? I might just, Daniel? I was going to say, maybe you think like, you already did the Ah, very good. But notice the difference what was said here. You might say he actually rejects the whole concept of mitzvah, Baba Vera. Maybe he thinks once what's done is done. Right, it's like sunk cost. I did a bad thing. Okay, but that's separate from the fact that I am now 
taking our Baminim, right? Who says that the fact that it came from a theft three days ago shouldn't validate it? That is one broad possibility. What's the second broad possibility? I think Manny's on this. He agrees with Baba but for whatever reason, he thinks it doesn't apply over here. I'll just toss out one possibility, guys. Okay, where do we derive it from? A pasuk about korbanot, the sacrificial order. What if he thinks Shmuel is a radical theory? We only invalidate mitzvot when it comes to karbanot. Maybe it's a limited concept. Karbanot could have extra stringencies. And lulav is not a karban. Therefore, it's fine. But notice, I think that's a really interesting conversation. Does Shmuel totally reject this concept of mitzvah babayra? Does he limit it? But again, if I was giving a halacha-oriented cheer, I'd probably spend very little time because I'd say, I'm sorry, Shmuel, very fascinating, but we just don't follow you. Okay, any comments on that? Okay, so again, alternative one would be to say, I'm not only interested in what's conceptually exciting, I want to get to the halacha. So I can have a more halacha-oriented gemara here. Okay, next. Yeah. Uh, could you just pay for like, what you stole? Uh, and then you yeah, to a question, Max, but I'm going to leave it be for now. Okay, please. Dr. Kimmel. Oh, you can call me DLP, please. Wait, what what is DLP there for? I'm missing it. No, just because when I grew up in Canada, my mother's my real name is Gilad, but all my friends didn't have Israeli names. So I didn't like them. Wait, you're you're from an Israeli family? No. My mother lived in Israel for many years when I was born. I my name she gave me the name Gilad, but I didn't like it because all my friends were Jeffrey and I understood. And so but now I love my name. Yeah, but now I'm curious though, does that mean that your mom spoke to you in Hebrew? No. Oh, what a lost opportunity. No. Okay. But I knew, but I learned people. I didn't even know they didn't teach a lot You went to a Hebrew speaking school? Of course. Which well, one? Well, it was uh, Herzliya High School. Ah, in Montreal. Montreal. Yeah, because I didn't think Vancouver had that option. No, not as good. He doesn't keep it. Wow. <laughs> See, Max, you just missed out. Vancouver Public School, Herzliya. <laughs> My God, it's amazing how much you've accomplished nonetheless. Right, yeah, please. He's, he's, uh, so yeah, please. So my question is, when we're talking about the stolen love, it's the person that wants to do the mitzvah that stole it, or somebody else stole it and gave it. Let, it it's a very good question. Let's assume for the sake of argument that the guy wants to do the mitzvah stolen. Because you're right, it might be different if you're a third party. So the easier case is that the, we're talking about the thief. Can the thief fulfill the mitzvah? Uh, yeah, that seems, that seems very uh, uh, off the charts that he would steal it and then try to... Okay, so that's a good question, but unfortunately, one of the things we discover is that humanity, including religious Jews, are quite complicated. And somehow the same person who's zealous about Arba Minim could somehow overlook the theft prohibition. I agree, it sounds odd, but uh, unfortunately, humanity does those things. Okay? We're good? Okay, great. So that's one option. Let me give you another option. What if I say there's certain literary questions you could ask? And by literary, I think a lot of it would be structure and placement. Oh, okay, we uh, need uh, Ronnie, who's had your grandfather here for this. I don't know if we, oh, he is here. Uh, did you do it for Talmud too, or just for Humash? I was here before. Pretty okay, so uh, you'll see what I mean, guys. Let's use some sukkah examples. What kind of literary questions cast about structure? So I'm going to do three different examples. Okay, let's start right away. What are the first two chapters of sukkah about? First two chapters are about, anyone know? Sukkah. The sukkah. What's the third chapter moved to? Mm-hmm. So, namely the Arba Minim. Now, you guys might think something has to be first, but could you ask the question, is the reason why they chose to put sukkah first? Is it possible that indicates somehow sukkah is more essential to the Chag than the Arba Minim? Right, is that possible, guys? Wait, let me do, I want to do three examples. I'll get to in a minute. So, again, usually brisk is not asked that question because it's not so much. I, I realize, guys, the literary questions could affect the conceptual questions, 
But briskers tend to not focus much on literary questions. I've got another one. What about when you get to the Arba Minim? What's the order in the third chapter? I think it's Lulav. Is Aravar Hadas next in the Mishnah? I just can't remember. Remember what the next Mishnah is? Basically, Etrog is last, right? It's Lulav. We should be precise on this, right? I should just guess. Okay, Lulav is the first one. Then the next Mishnah is. Next Mishnah is Hadas. Then Arava. Okay. It's Lulav, Hadas, Arava, Etrog. Now, I realize, guys, again, you could say every time there's a structure and order, someone could say to me, Rabbi, something had to be first. So I agree. I'm not saying it has to be meaningful, but couldn't you at least raise the question? So then I would have a second question. Is there a reason why Lulav goes first? Is Lulav somehow more essential than Etrog, which is all the way at the end? Have a good so far? So I already have two good questions about the placement. Why is Sukkah before Abhaminim? Why is Lulav first and Etrog last? Now, I even got a third question from you guys. Okay, uh, that first Mishnah says, Lulav, Gazul, guys, for parents, I'm sorry, I'm not going to explain this all, but the guys will get it. Gazul and Yavesh are Pasul, Asherah and Iranidach are Pasul. Guys, of those two couples, which couple is a natural couple to go together? Which couple is not a natural couple? Okay, excellent, Avi. See, you get the answer right in front of Grandma. You can't beat that. Okay, Asherah and Iranidach both have to do with idolatry and pagan worship. So that's a natural couple. Is there any reason why a stolen lulav and a dried-out lulav belong together? They have nothing to do with each other, right? Why they're problematic, the stolen one and the dried-out one. So a number of achronim say, why, when they organize the Mishnah, why would they couple together gazul with yavesh? You notice I just asked. I asked three questions about structure and placement. I'm going to call them literary questions. Why sukkah first? Why is lulav first? Why would I couple together Gazul and Yavesh? Okay, does anybody have any comments on any of those three questions? Ellis? Yeah, you How did I do that? I, I only asked two more questions. How could that possibly answer your question? No, I was going to ask that, like, why should we necessarily assume that something earlier is Oh, okay, I'm open to another suggestion. I'm open to another suggestion. You can tell me there's a different reason why we want it to come first. Right. But I think you can at least raise the question. Is there some logic to the order? Right. Some logic to the structure? Why G? Okay, so the truth is, what, you're talking about the Gazul and Yavesh? Yeah. Okay, so you might be onto something. For example, what if that's how we knew that Gazul should be invalid for all seven days? Because maybe we said to ourselves, we know Yavesh is invalid for all seven days, and therefore its coupling will show. Correct. That might be one. I think one of the Akhodim suggests that. Manny. Yeah, why can't you just say that the, the second two are supposed to be together because that makes sense, and then they put the other two together because either you put them together or you put one before, before the, the pair and the one after. So okay, great. So let me again reiterate, guys. I'm not saying that all these other questions have to have an answer. And sometimes the answer will be quite technical. right? Maybe we just put them together, as many say, because, well, we had two outliers, and what do you, you know what it's like, guys? It's like uh, that wedding table where no one has anything to do with each other. What do you have, right? You're making seating for the wedding, and there's the obvious, you know, relatives A, relatives B, his friends, her friends. Then you have like a random group of people who somehow got invited. So they're all at the same table, right? What can you do? They're the last group, right? What? Okay, so maybe it's like that sometimes. So I agree, I'm not suggesting you need a, 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 a home run reason for all of this. I think at least you could raise the question. 
Maybe there is a home run reason for it. Yeah, no. The first question could just be ordering events. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. So you said the couples, like, but I feel like the Gemara is not just like supposed to be a, a literary word. Like they would have just said it if they really wanted you to draw a connection. Like, I feel like. I'm just curious, Ronnie. Would, correct me if I'm wrong. Would you say the same about Chumash? No. Okay, so but maybe there's more literary things going on in Gemara than you suspect. Maybe Chumash, it's more obvious that there's these literary techniques at work. But what if we discover that we could show some pretty convincing examples of Gemara as well? I admit, I haven't done it right now. But, oh, that's fair. Ronnie, very, very, he's a fair fellow. Okay. Ronnie, we also, uh, it's just between me and you. We, we admire your keyboard of Amy this week, Ronnie. Okay, but only you and I know what we're talking about. Actually, it's not true. Everybody knows what we're talking about. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. The examples you gave so far, those are all from the Mishnah. So if you're making a distinction between those... Okay, fine. That's fair. I think the Mishnah definitely has more... Okay, that's fair. Let me try one more. Okay, you guys okay if I do one more? Okay. If I... I'm doing this just to... Guys, this is not a good question. It's just to set up the next question. If I ask you, why is the discussion of the height of Lulav in Masechet Is that a good question or a terrible question? It's a terrible Okay, but if I ask you, why is the sugya of osik b'mitzvah patam in a mitzvah in Mesechet Okay, that means that if I'm involved in one mitzvah, I get an exemption from a different mitzvah. Okay, does that, is that a good question? Yeah. Wouldn't you agree that that could have been in 17 different Mesechet And yet Chazal chose to discuss it. Couldn't that also be a literary placement question? Is there anything about sukkah? Why it was... Now again, in all these guys, freedom of guys, you could say we had to put it somewhere. So that's what we chose... But at least be open. Maybe it wasn't arbitrary. Maybe there's something about sukkah. Why this was a good time to have that conversation. Okay, guys? So that would all be, we had halacha as a separate category. Yeah, I'm talking about placement, structure, literary questions as another category. Yeah. Okay, look, okay, it, it's very interesting what you just said. The Gemara sounds like it's a record of just a, a flowing, meandering conversation, right? We all agree. But the question is, is that really what's happening? Like, it could be that that is a little bit of an artistic sleight of hand, that that's the way Gemara is meant to feel, but there actually are reasons for placement. Um, is it okay if I discuss Agadah for one second? Okay, so let's go to another category, and then I'll get back to YG's point. Okay? Uh, okay, so again, another category. What if I was interested in Jewish thought and Jewish philosophy? Right? Briskers tend to not be so interested in that. Now, you might say, what does Jewish philosophy have to do with Gemara? But I actually think you're incorrect. I think it has a lot to do with it. Because a lot of the concepts, beyond their halachic component, have a Jewish thought component. Okay, here's a great example, guys. Let's say you're a Gavshir and you're discussing Baba Kama. So you might just take it... You already getting upset now? Yeah, where's your body representation? Fine. Oh, you're in your body share? Yeah. Oh, right, but I was going to do an example from the seventh perk, not the eighth perk. Mm-hmm. I'll do both, just to make you happy, okay? Okay, so what do I discover in the seventh perk? That there's a difference in halacha between a burglar and a mugger, between a ganav and a gazlan. What is the halachic difference? The ganav just paid the burglar who sneaks into your house, has to actually return the item and pay kefil. 
pay a fine, which is double the item. Whereas the, the mugger, what does he have to do? Just return the item. Now, I could just take that as a given and start to ask all kinds of brisker questions. What's the nature of the chi of kefel? But what if I don't want to take that as a given? What would I then ask? Isn't that counterintuitive? Who seems worse? Who seems more violent, right? Who has, uh, who will give you a sense of being violated more? Wouldn't you guys agree? Again, don't, actually, I shouldn't even push, I shouldn't, you know, bias the audience. Couldn't one argue that the mugger is more of a violent offender than the burglar? And then one would say, philosophically, this is odd. Why would the burglar have more payments than the mugger? Now, guess what? The Gemara does raise that. But the Gemara does it in a very, very short form where I would say most brisker shiurim would not focus on the slightest. You'd read that Gemara and just move on. Okay, but what if I go even further? Actually, does anyone know what the Gemara says, actually? Okay, oh, really? We have a great group here. Yoni. I think, isn't it that they're a dead man, so they're already, once you're a dead man, you can have, like, any of Okay, that was very good, but you got a different sugi in Sanhedrin. So your son knows a lot of Gemara, but he happens to be misapplying this one. Okay, Elliot. Uh, doesn't have to do with, like, God being able to see you both. Ah, what's the claim? That the burglar fears man and does not fear God, and the mugger has equal disdain for everybody. So what's the Gemara trying to claim, actually? That in a certain sense, who's worse? Actually, the burglar's worse. What if I told you that there's a Gemara, that there's a Rambam in Moran Bukhim where the Rambam gives a different explanation? And the Rambam says there's only one reason why the burglar pays more, because burglary is much more common than mugging. And in order to deter burglary, therefore, the Torah gives a bigger punishment. What? That very good many. Okay, so, but notice, if you really want to give a philosophy share now, Everyone just realized that we just had two theories of punishment manifest in the Gemara versus the Rambam, Moni Bukhim, right? What is the Rambam assuming? That punishment is about deterrence. And therefore, what's a key question? What is more common? What is less common? Guys, what was the Gemara focused on? Not what needs deterrence, but simply, but what is worse? What is a more grievous Crime. Would you agree, guys, that is not the deterrence theory of punishment, but that's the retribution theory of punishment? I mean, how much punishment should you get? Well, let's match up exactly with the severity of your crime. Now, I think this is a very interesting conversation. Why do Ghanav and Goslin differ? Is it this kind of theory of punishment? Is it that kind of theory of punishment? But this will tend to be like a brisker shear would say, no, no, that's for Jewish philosophy class. That's not what we do here. Right? Here we analyze the halakha concepts conceptually, but not the philosophical concepts. Okay, can we agree now that I've already given you? John, are you having a good time? Okay, we've had three alternatives. I could be focused, because you might say, what else could I do with the Gemara? I could focus on the halachic psaq. I could focus on some literary questions. I could focus on some Jewish thought questions. I'll even do one for the eighth parak, just to make Yoni Kirov happy. Okay, let's have the eighth parak of Baba Kama. And... I'm trying to should I go with Ayn Takarayin or blind people? What do you want to go with? Ayn Takarayin. Fine. What do I discover? That even though the Torah says an eye for an eye, for someone who assaults another person, how does halacha play out? You actually give monetary compensation and not an eye for an eye. So I could give a great share about that also. But what if I ask myself, I would say it's a little more of a Jewish thought question. We talk about the distinction between, ah, this for Barkai, between Pshat and Drash. 
But is that a distinction only for narrative parts of Chumash? Or could that distinction be relevant even for legal? I mean, see what I just said? We're, we're, we agree we're all used to Pshat versus Rosh in narrative. Like, it, what's the Pshat? Paro's daughter sent out a maidservant to get the baby. That's the Pshat. What's the Drash? Her arm miraculously extended and... So we're all used to that. But what about when I move from narrative to law? Can I still say the following words? The pshat of Ayin Tachadayin is literally an eye for an eye, but we follow the halachic drash that it is monetary compensation, which would, of course, open up a follow-up question, which would be, wait, so what relevance does the pshat have if in halacha we end up not, not following it? Everyone see what I just said? So do you agree that's a little bit more of a Jewish thought conversation than a... It could be, I don't know, if Ravadi discussed it, but that might be a little more Jewish thought conversation than a classic Gemara conversation. So that is my fourth category. But let me make one more point here, guys, which is, wouldn't you agree also at that point, I might be more interested in the agadic portions of Gemara? Okay, as we know, Gemara is not just legal discussions. It is also stories and ethical advice and the like. But again, if I'm a brisker shear, I want to analyze halakhic concepts. Hearing a story about Rishim Barachai in the cave is not going to help me analyze halakhic concepts. So I'm less likely to be interested in the agadic portions. But again, if part of what I'm getting out of Gemara is Jewish thought and Jewish philosophy, so maybe it is quite relevant. Because what does the story of Rishim Barachai in the cave talk about? What's the relationship between scholars and the common man? Right? That's a pretty important topic, right? But again, that's not a Jewish... Halakhic topic, Talmudic topic, it, well, it's Talmudic in the sense that it's Agadah. But again, I would put those together. And at one last point of Agadah, we're going to move on, see if there's any comments, because I still have to describe the brisket Derek a little bit more. But I'll get to YG's point now. Now, stories that appear in the Talmud, it does appear a bit haphazard sometimes. I mean, why does story appear? Again, as YG said, at, how does it feel like with you, right? Yeah. When a meeting comes what does it seem like? Oh, we were discussing the Beit Midrash, and one tangent led to another. So the Roshimun Bayochai story in the cave is in the second chapter of Masechet Shabbat. And it seems that it arises quite tangentially. I'll leave out what the tangent is. But there's some, like, association, and therefore the story comes up. Okay, but I'm about to argue, and here's some very interesting, guys. This doesn't happen so often. Here's an example where Hasidish Rabbanim and contemporary academics in university agree on this. Okay, which is they both think that the placement was purposeful and not just an accident. Rabbi Tzadok HaKoyen from Lublin, who's a Hasidic Rabbi, is very adamant about it. And if you go to, who's going to NYU? If you go to NYU, you should take a Talmud professor named Jeff Rubenstein, who happens to be, happens to be, um, oh, your, your buddy, oh, that's right. He, uh, it was Ricky Hittery's teacher. That's why, that's why he has a PhD right now as we speak, okay? And uh, his nephew is Jonah Achsen. Okay, so you should take him. He agrees with Rav Tzadok about this. What do they agree with? That the placement was not haphazard, it was purposeful. So let's use this example because I think it's kind of convincing. Okay, does anyone know? Actually, let's do it this way. The second parak of Shabbat is actually a parak many of you know without realizing it because it's a Marley kid. So what's it a parak about, right? Preparing just before Shabbat, which includes lighting candles. Can anyone tell me what happens in that story that might make link with the theme of the chapter? Why is preparing for Shabbat in that story? We're Shimbachai in the cave. You have to know the end of the story. Oh, someone's got to get here. It can't be nobody knows it. Ezra, you know? 
Guys, remember guys, I'll, I'll give you a hint. I'll, I'm going to lead you to it. Shumbar Chai and his son originally are upset with everybody. Why are they upset with everybody? Because everybody's engaged with mundane activity. We want to be involved in the spirit, spiritual all the time. All the time, davening or learning Torah. What reconciles them to the world? Avery. Oh, very good. See? Your nechet does it again. Okay, excellent. Okay, remember they see a Jew running with two myrtle branches just before Shabbat? And they say to him, why do you have two myrtle branches? And what does he say? One is for Zachar and one is for Shamar. And all of a sudden they get reconciled to the world where they say, oh, see, like the common Jews really love mitzvot. We shouldn't be so negative about the rest of the community. But what is the key moment there? A moment of getting ready for Shabbat. So what if I say it was a sleight of hand? It looks like that story only appears in the second chapter because the meandering Talmudic conversation, because of a tangent. But why does that story actually appear in the chapter? Because this chapter about getting ready just before Shabbat. And that's the key moment in the story. So YG, I'm trying to tell you, it might be that the Gemara is misleading, that it looks like it's just a meandering conversation, but the reality is some of that placement is quite purposeful. Ah, so as you know, YG, I am not so into all or nothing. I think all or nothing is usually a mistake. But I have to admit, on this case, Rav Tzodok disagrees with me. Rav Tzodok claims that every agatic placement is meaningful. That seems to be a little bit of a difficult stretch. But why can't you say sometimes it's meaningful and sometimes it's not? By the way, I was going to say the same about the literary, right? Sometimes, as Manny said, we might have just done it because we had no choice, right? That table at the wedding. But sometimes it is purposeful. Okay, so just to summarize, we are before I take questions. I still have some more to go here, guys. We already had three alternatives to the briskers. We could be focused on the halachic psak. We could be focused on the literary questions. We could be focused on the Jewish thought, Jewish philosophy questions. Okay, who has a comment, Ronnie? Why can't they just have been thinking a lot about having meaningful the end of the Okay, fine. No, but all I'm saying, Ronnie, is I don't know if everyone has to be meaningful. Maybe at some point they just said, we've got this great story, it's got to be somewhere. All right, we'll put it here. Not because there was real planning to where it is. Okay? Uh, do you guys want to hear one more example of the placement or no? Should we move on? One more. One more? Okay. This, that was Jeff Rubenstein. We'll do one from Rev <coughs> The famous Gemara about the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. Ah, very good. Which tractate are they in? Gitin. Now, you could say it's purely technical. What if you wanted to find meaning in it? What would you say? John, it's the, the exactly. There's a classic metaphor that the relationship between God and the Jewish people is a husband and wife. One could view the destruction of the temple as some kind of divorce, some kind of break in the relationship. So that's exactly what Sadok says. Sadok says it's not an accident that's in Gitin, it thematically belongs there. Okay, so that would be again that approach to both Agatic material and that placement matters. Okay, anybody else with a comment we've done so far? Okay, great. Let's do, okay, um, I'm debating, I only have nine minutes, oh man, you guys are too much fun. All right, I'm going to leave out some other options if I can just talk about brisk, okay? Now, one thing to realize, when someone starts, this is a good rule for life, intellectual history in general, when someone starts a new theory, it doesn't mean <clears throat> nobody ever did it beforehand. Okay, what does it tend to mean? You take ideas that were out there and... You systemize them. You create a terminology for them. Everyone understand what I just said? Okay, I'll give you one example from general history, then we'll get back to Bristol learning. 
Okay, um, let's say you are Karl Marx or, or you're Engels, right? And you're sitting in some library in London in the 1800s. I've got a great idea. Humanity will not fight if we just share our economic resources. Communism, right? Are they, you think they're the first two guys who thought of that in human history? Of course not. Like many people before that, there were Greeks who thought of such things. There were medieval Christians who thought of such things. They were, but what did they do though? But they created a system, right? Here's our system. Here's our movement. Here's our terminology. Right, so again, if you say Rav Chaim started the Briskar Derech, you do not mean that none of these ideas existed before. But he systemized them. He gave a terminology for them. I'll give you a good example. Um, okay, here we go. I, I thought you were going to say before, a classic Brisker split is what's called between Chefsa and Gavra. Right, is it about the object or is it about the person? I'll give you an example in a second to try to make it less abstract. Um... There now that's an idea that appears in Shas, but it appears once. So notice what happened here. You have an idea that appears once in Shas, but the Briskers took it and they ran with it. And all of a sudden, what appeared once in Shas became an essential component of Talmudic analysis. Where is the one place that appears in Shas? And then I'll explain for everybody what the concept is. Okay, there's a Gemara Nidarim that says there are two kinds of vows in Halakha. There's a neder and a shvua. We normally say a net, just to use the English terminology, which I don't know if it's precise, we'll normally translate neder as a vow and shvu as an oath. Okay? But the Gemara says, guess what the difference is? I hope I get this right. Neder is an iser chefsa and shvu is an iser gavra. What does that mean? I could, let's say, ah, let's use me. Why should we make fun of anybody else? Let's say you have a rabbi who might be good at teaching, but he's not good at not eating too much, and therefore he's overweight. So he wants to deal with it. So he wants to take a vow to cut out cheesecake. Okay, so says the Gemara, if I took a neder against eating cheesecake, I'd actually be creating a status in the item. It's like the cheesecake is radioactive. It's not about me only, it's about the cake. If I take a shvua, what am I saying? Oh, that's great cheesecake. There's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. It's just that... I personally shouldn't touch it. Now, you might think that's too subtle. There's no real difference there. I don't want to debate it right now. We can debate it some other time. But that's the difference between Isser Chefsa and an Isser Gavra. Now, one could say, actually, getting back to my morning share, I think someone said to me afterward, Mr. Feinberg said it afterward, you could say that that's the difference between Isser Doraita and Isser Drabanan. What do you guys say? Which way do you think it would play out? Which would be Chefsa, which would be Gavra? Exactly. Chuck understands the world. When the Torah prohibit something today. It's a statement about the item. Pork is radioactive. That's an Easter or a chefza. But when the rabbis tell me not to eat chicken and milk, well, that's really not essentially wrong because it was essentially wrong. It would be biblically prohibited. But what could the rabbis do? They can't define the item, but they could say, you, human being, you should not partake. So that would be, again, Easter or versus Easter or gavra. So again, let's say Rabbi Chaim shows up and starts to use that concept a lot. See, Rabbi Chaim, you didn't do anything because it's already in the Darim. But that's false, because what would Rabbi Chaim say? What do you mean? Like, till you had me, the Briskoderech, it was one idea once in Shas. But I'm showing that it could be used on 30 occasions to explain the Talmudic universe. Okay, so again, so when you start a new Derech, you take ideas that already existed, and you make a big method out of them. Just to give you another example, I'm sorry, Yoni, don't be upset, but for Rav Gavshir, okay, in Rav Gavshir, you guys, this year, are doing a lot of... Right, Daniel, did you move to Rav Gav? I've been in Okay, so you're doing a lot of... John, are you doing a lot of Tzos now, right? Yeah. 
Now, the Ktsos is before Abchaim or after Abchaim? Before. Okay, now doesn't a lot of Ktsos sound similar to what Abchaim is doing? But he's earlier. But according to what I just said, guys, it's not a question because we're not saying that Abchaim came out of nowhere. Guys, human beings, I'll say this to you, I hope no one's disappointed. Human beings have been thinking for so long, no idea is going to come out of nowhere at this point. Right? Everything's going to have some kind of antecedent. But the question is, where do you go with it? Okay, I'll give you one more example, guys, and we'll see if there's a closing time to your question. Okay, Daniel, is this kind of what you're looking for or not? Yeah. Okay, excellent. I don't want to disappoint you. Okay. Um, let, wouldn't you also say that with, besides a uh, movement, my, again, I said two things it might do. It might take an idea and make it more of a methodology. It might give you a terminology that, ah, even this, guys. What if we say there were communists before Marx, but no one had a term for the proletariat? We needed that term, right? Those Greek communists talked about sharing money, but they never said proletariat. Now that we have that term, we can proceed, right? Sometimes terminology is quite helpful. Okay, so now that's another thing that the Bristol might do. But there might be a third thing. What if I say there are variants within every movement, right? What if there are, you know, more, some communists were more pessimistic about humanity, more optimistic about humanity, right? If you ever read about Moses Hess, he was a Jewish socialist, but he thought more of humanity than Marx did. Okay, but in any case, let's go back here. And here, this is really, guys, I think the Rav Gav students will really appreciate this. Okay, I said before, guys, Rav Chaim Soloveitchik wrote one book. What's it a book on? Which, which Sefer? Rav Chaim only wrote on the Rambam. And what's the assumption in the Salvechik family tree? What's the best way to be a brisker? If you quote a lot, do a lot of analysis of Rambam. Okay? Fine, it's a fair point. I'll get, I don't have time to get into why, but that's what they think. But what if I grow up in Philadelphia and after going to Barrack Academy, I go to Nativ Arye for two years and I decide my future is in the mirror. Okay, and then I go to the mirror yeshiva for how long? Ten years. Ten years. Okay, and now I hear about a famous rabbi named Rav Nachum Parchovich. And he does a lot of conceptual analysis. Okay, but he says, listen guys, people don't realize this. They don't give him enough credit. But someone who's a close reader of Rashi will see that all these conceptual ideas, they're right there. You just have to slow down and read Rashi very carefully. And now you notice what Rashi says, even knows what Rashi does not say. And that will be very telling. So notice what's happening. I would say, if you're in Rav Gav Shir, you're still in a brisker Shir. But notice the difference. By the way, there's still Yeshiva Yushalayim today called Brisk. So I'd say the following, guys. If I go to the Yeshiva called Brisk, I'm doing all that conceptual stuff, but my essential text is Rambam. But if I'm in the mirror, I'm doing all that conceptual stuff, but all of a sudden my essential text is Rashi. So notice how within the system you could also have interesting variations of how you go about it. Okay, does anyone have any comments or questions we've done? I'd love to speak a little bit more, but it's 509, yeah. I've heard of a method before called Okay, uh, that is a great question. First of all, I have to ask my usual question. Why in the world have you heard of Bilbo? <laughs> well, I heard that that's kind of a place. Yeah, but where did you hear that from? I actually don't remember. Maybe I like, read it on Wikipedia or something. Sometimes you like, pull it out of those Wikipedia rabbit holes and then you just like, like things. Okay, so the truth is, it, I'm not going to answer I'll just tell you the term. Okay, Ellis is mentioning a term called Pilpol, but Pilpol is often, the problem is it's become to be used pejoratively. 
right? Meaning that was when people didn't know how to analyze so well till Brisk cleared the path. I guess that's the way Briskers talk about it, right? But once it's used pejoratively, if you think about it, it becomes a little bit difficult to define. I'll, just, I'll close with one good line. And those who are interested, I'm happy to do this more another time. Okay, um, here's a good line, guys. Let's say you go to Barkai and you really like Pshat and not Rush. So someone can still challenge you and say, well, how do you define what's Pshat and what's Rush? Now, I think there are good answers, so don't take this joke seriously. But in Chabalibus once said, you know what the difference is? Pshat is what I think it means, and Drash is what you think it means. Okay, that's what Nechama Libra once suggested. Okay, so sometimes in Talmudic analysis, you get the same problem, Ellis. That since pilpul became this pejorative term, so what will people say? What's pilpul? Have they learned in the other yeshiva? That's pilpul. Right, have they learned in our yeshiva? That's good Talmudic analysis. So at that point, it's a little bit harder to define. So I'm going to duck it for now. Yeah, YG. Earlier you were saying how an uh, yeah, that's what the Gemara seems to indicate. That a nether would. A nether would make yeah, the item. Yeah. Would, and therefore, it, and that would be classified as a derisa because... The well, they're, they're both usser, but they're usser in a different kind of way. Yes, I'm saying, if you apply that to that you're asking a great question, so I'll have to wait for another time. You seem to say, should we view Tuma as a metaphysical reality about the item or not? That's what you're asking, right? Yeah. Okay, I'll give Sharon another day. All right, guys, it's been a pleasure. All parents, have a great time here.